this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. Last year, I sat down with Brian and Eddie Holland, who were, of course, two-thirds of the Motown Records songwriting team of Holland Dozier Holland, and they went deep into the writing of some of the most famous songs of all time. Today, we're going to have an encore presentation of that episode, and we'll be back next week with something brand new. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Now, we've had some legendary guests on this show, but today, I think, ranks pretty high. We have with us today Eddie and Brian Holland, who, with Lamondozia, made up one of the greatest songwriting teams ever to live. Uh, you know them as Holland Dozier Holland. These two brothers wrote an amazing new book called Come and Get These Memories about their days with Motown and a whole lot more. And I really enjoyed reading it, and I learned a lot. And I, I don't know if you guys can grasp the extent to, you know, I'm, I'm a little younger, so these songs were just graven in stone. They were always there for me. And, and to learn the humanity behind the writing of them was an extraordinary experience. So I guess I'll start, first of all, if you could introduce yourself so, we, so our listeners know which one is which. <laughs> oh, I'm Eddie Holland. I'm Brian Holland. Welcome again. There's a lot in, in the fascinating memories of, of your childhoods and your family, and uh, you know I recommend everyone dig into the book and read about that. But we only have so much time, so I guess I'll jump ahead and and just wonder if you could talk about your first encounters with Barry Gordy, uh, which was pretty early on, obviously. Well, I met a Barry Gordy first. I was about 18 years old, you know, so that, that was a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, he was, you know, basically a struggling songwriter and uh, wrote some pretty good songs, you know, for, you know, Jackie Wilson or two or three hits. And I think he had trouble getting uh, his royalties collected f- from a New Yorker by the name of Nat Tarnapole. So to, it put him in a si- situation where a lot, a lot of us creative people are. You know, you're staying with family, depending on family to help and this and that. And that, that, that went on for a few years in his life. And uh, till he just, you know, end up finding a, um, a, a you know, I, I, I would say the artist found him, a singer, cause to um, record his material. And he wasn't managing him. He was just doing it to make money. You know, they, I think they would charge five hundred dollars to get your songs recorded and get a recording of it. And one of the records were very, very exceptional, and became very successful. That started the whole thing, the whole ball rolling. You know, they had enough money to buy Hitsfield. They, they lived in there upstairs and recorded, built a studio, 
downstairs and sort of opened the doors for the people that he knew and liked, hmm. you know, which was myself, Brian Holland again, and Eddie Holland and, and Smokey Robinson, for, you know, the sm- and so, you know, we got together and, and you know, he, he liked young people around anyway, you know. But for whatever reason, we started gravitating and start learning in such a fast pace how to write and produce ourselves, you know, that he looked and he said we had surpassed him. And so he just stepped back and for the most part and let all of us, you know, do our thing, as he says. And he said that he was amazed how how we developed. And But it was it was when I say it was, quickly it wasn't really that quick not to us you know when you're young you know 18 19 years old two years is a long time it's a, a lifetime point. to you know so that's that's basically how you know it all started now brian i believe the uh, first hit you were involved with was uh, please mr postman that's correct maybe you can share just a little bit of, of uh, th- that was a, a co-write with a number of people not with Eddie at that point no that was with uh, robert bateman and uh, georgia dobbins and um uh, Freddie Gorman was some people that uh, helped write that song, which uh, it was unbelievable how uh, that song uh, lasts so long, and then the Beatles picked it up and they put it on the album, which sold more than <laughs> everything. Any any person I had been with had recorded that song with, you know, and um, I think. Um, the Carpenters did the song also. There was a couple other people that did the song too. Um, what's so surprising also was that Postman went to number one on three different artists. You know, so that caused me to make a little money with it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Now, as as the story goes in the book, Eddie, when you saw some of the royalty statements <laughs> for, for Please Mr. Postman, that's when you realized that, that maybe being a songwriter was better than being a singer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, all you fledging artists and writers mm-hmm. who have experienced the same type of thing, you know, where it's not that easy for records to sort of take off and uh, you, you go into your of fortunes of glory and whatever sometimes it doesn't happen as quickly as you want mm-hmm. and but the, but the my brother being the youngest he he was making what I considered a lot of money at that time and uh and I was impressed and so that 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 caused me which I didn't really like performing anyway I didn't like traveling around it wasn't my it wasn't that my it was my type of Style was my personality. I, you know, I was a little more introverted. I didn't. I really didn't like it. You know, guy. And I've learned to appreciate artists who travel a lot. They who love it, especially Smokey. Smokey can travel forever, ever, and ever. He loves it. You know, and uh, I, I, I. It wasn't my thing. So I just took to songwriting. I learned how to do write my. You know, learn to write. You know, because I thought uh, I could be a great asset to a uh, Brian and Lamont. Yeah, I mean, the the way it worked was, and I don't know if everyone knows this, uh, is that uh, Brian and Lamont were essentially the, the, the musical composers, and Eddie, you were the, uh, you, you were the lyricist. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, and, and, you, and you kind of, you woodshedded for a number of months to learn... A couple of years. Yeah, for, yeah. for a couple of years, to learn how to, how to right. write lyrics from scratch. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I had no idea, no concept of it at all, you know. 
But, uh, you know, I'm a quick study in things that I'm interested in, which is probably most people are. If you're really, really interested in something, you you know, you, you can be a pretty quick study, whoever you are, you know. You had some pretty serious competition at Motown, given that the other main lyricist was Smokey Robinson. Well, <laughs> that was extreme uh, competition because I thought he was brilliant. I still think so. Uh, I know when he... F- first started and the songs that he was recreating he was barely a teenager i don't know how in the heck he could do it how he come up with it it was just amazing to me because he was writing just like he was an old man you know he was <laughs> hardly in his 20s you know and uh, he, he just amazed me you know especially the things he did on you know mary uh wells you know and beat me to the punch and mm-hmm. i got two lovers i said what the heck this guy know about writing like that mm-hmm. but he was a natural poet a natural mm-hmm. poet you know and extremely good but as as barry gordy pointed out you were and are a, a psychological writer a different kind of approach to right to right <laughs> yeah. yeah you heard that too yeah yeah that is true that's true because my first introduction in trying to learn, as I wrote down two of Smokey Robinson's songs, but I can't remember what they were at this point, and I studied it, and I realized he was so sophisticated. I said, he would take me a lifetime to write like this. I said, I have to find another approach to writing. You know? yeah. And so I developed another technique, you know, based on, you know, trying to for people to pick up the sound, to pick up the words, and I start quickly learning to, you start putting words in the same rhythmic pattern, and you put certain words on certain patterns of music, they seem to stick more. For some other reason, I was able to pick up on that, and I started developing a whole other approach to it. And uh, that's what Barry said. He said, you're really a psychological writer. Because I would always tell people, I said, well, I said, now, because I've always criticized a lot of the writers. He can't understand what everybody said. You know what they mean? And I said, I said, I'll tell you one thing. I said, you not maybe can't hear every word I say. I said, but you cannot listen to a song and not know what it means. Because I had the words placed in such a way and I used something that I had learned in high school called repeat formation. Instead mm. of saying the same thing, but differently. But you keep the pattern straight. You keep the, the, the you, you, to the point where people can pick up on it, you know. So, yeah, it was, it just, it took a little time to develop. But I was glad I was able to do it. I was very fortunate, too, you know. Went to great schools, by the way. Not that I did so well in the schools because I really didn't. I really wanted to get in and out so fast, you know. But I, I realized that I had picked up enough that I was able to, you know, conjugate these words and different things, you know. Well, what you guys did and very quickly was embark on one of the most extraordinary creative streaks in, in the history of American songwriting. Uh, I think it, it would be hard to deny. And I, I think one of the main things is, is amazing is the the process, which is that Lamont and Brian would compose the song uh, and then make a track, and you would have a melody that was kind of a dummy. It was just humming, right, with no words. Is that is that kind of and and right? No, yeah. yeah. As a rule, no words. But, no words. But you would write to a finished track played by played by the Frank Brothers. You you would actually sit there and write to that, which cool. is. You may have been the first person to do that because no one was set up to, to do like that before, you know? Well, first of all, again, by me not really being a songwriter, just learning. And the thing about the thing that really inspired me is that 
I found out that my brother could really write great melodies, and I was just fascinated with his melodies. And I was also fascinated and asked myself, why could he do that? And I couldn't. How could he hear that? And I couldn't. So at very early age, it, I would I would think about that. You know, glad he could do it, but I, you know, I would analyze everything anyway. So, but the fact of the matter is, once I heard the melody, I learned to take the melody along with the rhythm and just synchronize the words. You know, so it, I could do it pretty easy. But the thing about it is, I remember once Mickey Stevens, another great songwriter and producer, he he once told me, he said, look, uh, everybody's, you know, the executives that there, you know, with the lawyers and administrators, they were sort of envious that the the creative people could come in any time they wanted to, although we didn't come in really, really late. We loved, yeah. They had to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. He said, well, these guys are making so much money and they're so young. He said, they come in when they want to. I think they should come in at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, like the lawyers in the ministry. I said, listen, I said, I'll tell you something. I said, <laughs> I'm not doing that because the one thing I didn't want to do was push a clock, especially if it's something I didn't like doing. But I had, I was just, just psychologically, I, I, I didn't want that pressure. I said, I tell you, he said, well, I'll get somebody else to write for Brian Lamont. I said, I tell you what, you can. I said, but not like me. He looked at me because I was very, very serious because I didn't think the way that I was writing and understood their melodies, I didn't think you could get somebody to do that that easily. I think you were right. Now, <laughs> I mean, very early on, we're talking about 1963, uh, you wrote Heat Wave. What do you remember about writing that one? Both of you. Well, Lamont on that particular one was a great influence on the Heat Wave, you know, Heat Wave, you know. Because Lamont was a master in doing shuffles. That was his main thing, shuffles, you know. So he would write this shuffle, and he said, heat wave, heat wave. And so I just thought about it and thought about it. And he, I think he had a couple lines, and love is like a heat wave. And I just said, he just, you know, whatever. So I just took it for that and just created a song behind it. Because I always felt, you know, I learned early on that females bought most of the records. So I had a tendency to write what I thought appealed to females. You know, and that that was a great gauge for me, you know, to write what what, would appeal to them. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value 
when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. Fire, yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size cardboard cutout. (laughs) This is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Brian, it seems like you heard these arrangements in your head you heard these chord changes in your head and just had to kind of get them out is that is that how it works well that's basically how it was um i could hear melodies uh, quite frequently and um i would just go to the piano and just kind of bang it i was never a real piano player but i could play well enough to come up with the melodies and keep the melodies going and uh I was so influenced by uh, orchestration from school. From Ford Motor Company, would sponsor kids to go to auditoriums to to see hear these symphonic orchestras. You know, yeah. And when I went to see one, it was unbelievable how they had all the strings and the horns and the, the Tiffany's and. All together, I mean, it was just mind blowing, you know, uh, unbelievable sounds and whatnot, which uh, influenced me greatly, you know. But yeah. let, let me in, in, intervene in, in Bryant, which said, Bryant can't take all the credit now because Bryant, unbeknownst at our early age, was gifted with the ear his grandfather had. Hmm. His grandfather had, our grandfather really, <laughs> had a super ear. Yeah. He, anything he heard, he could play. He was uh. a train, I don't know where he picked that up from, but he if he heard it, he could play. Mm. He loved different sounds. Matter of fact, our grandfather would walk down the street with a, he would take a leaf off of a tree and he would put it in his hand. He would make all kinds of bird sounds. I always wanted to do it and never could do it. He would laugh. He said, no, you can't. He said, you're not, you're not going to be able to do that. But basically, Brian had his ear mm-hmm. and, and I, he was gifted with it. And, uh, I wasn't, you know, and, and that, but that was just one of those things. You know, we, I guess we all have a separate talent. But again, I often thought about, wow, what a, a situation where Brian and I, can pick up these talents from my parents and grandparents. You know, I had my mother's voice, tone qualities, and the person in school told me, say, look, he said, you got this voice. You got a great sound in your voice. He said, but you know what? You can't help it. He said, because you inherit that voice from somebody in your family, you know. But I often thought about how fortunate Brian and I were to learn and have all these things and to have an opportunity, uh you know, Mm -hmm. to do this. And they never could. I mean, Mm -hmm. they never could. 
whatever their talents were, they could never make over $150 or $200 a week, you know? Mm-hmm. And here we are, we're doing the same thing that basically learned from them and could pick it up, and we could make thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of dollars from it, you know? <laughs> and I often felt kind of guilty about that and said that they were shortchanged and whatever. I mean, well, again, that's my mind running away with being mm-hmm. anal- analytical, you know? Sure. I mean, there were so many great artists as well, of course. Motown at the time, you had the Supremes, and the Supremes were having trouble getting a hit. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't, you needed to do a hit, and you came up with uh, Where Did Our Love Go? Mm-hmm. How, what do you remember about that, Brian, or the musically? Well, Where Did Our Love Go, once again, Lamont really came up with the actual melody to Where Did Our Love Go. And uh, I remember that uh, I wanted Dinah Ross to sing it and um, uh, ever wanted Mary Wilson to sing it and so we had a little (laughs) disagreement there so Elba can tell you more detail about it well because when I heard the melody I knew that it it had a sensuous feel to the chords and movement Mm -hmm. you know and Dinah Ross when I heard her uh, she was always singing high yeah, and 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 I thought her voice was high pitched, and I said this this song here doesn't call for that type of melody, and high with a high pitched voice. And I said I said Brian I said first of all I said anybody could sing this song you got a hit record. I said because it has a certain feeling I could hear it I could hear how I wanted to write it, and I knew that I could write it where it brought out the sensuousness in the melody. And I thought it was sort of sexy, you know. So, uh, and Brian didn't like it. He didn't. I had to argue for a few mm-hmm. minutes. And, I, and matter of fact, he thought I'd lost my mind, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I say, well, okay, I tell you what, can we drop the key? And, they, and he, Brian paused for a second or two. He said, yeah, we could do that. I said, okay, drop the key. I can get the same thing out of Diana Ross. Because, I mean, I wasn't going to win that battle anyway. So that's how it worked out. Yeah, you tell an amazing story about in the book about how Diana wanted to kind of riff on it a little bit because she heard the way you were singing it. But then you basically told her, no, she's got to sing it straight. She got pissed off. And then the take that we hear on the record, the, the vocal on one of the most famous songs <laughs> of the 20th century, was done in this sort of like sarcastic, deadpan way. That wasn't supposed to be the, the No, vocal. no. She was pissed with me. Right? That's the first time and only time, you know. And uh, she said, well, I'm going to call Barry because, you know, at that time, you know, we were, you know, still young. Barry's the old man of the group, which he wasn't old. (laughs) And uh, so everybody was afraid of him, you know, but me, you know. And I said, I'll tell you what, you can call Barry. That's my phone. You call us on on the, you call him. I said, but when you call him, tell him to come here and, and take you in the studio also. And I looked at her eyeball to eyeball, and she looked at me eyeball to eyeball, and she said, this fool means it. <laughs> so anyway, she she's not going. We were in the studio, uh, you know, and uh, my brother was the engineer, and uh, she started singing. And she had the most deadpan look on her face, but her voice 
had this sensuous sound to it. It sound, I don't know, it was just something about it. And I could hear the sound in her voice. And I knew what the words were saying. And I knew what the melody was saying to me, you know. And and she kept that dead pan, pan, pan look on her face. And my brother looked at me by the engineer. and said to say, you want me to stop this? You want me to go on? I said, no, no, don't stop. Whatever you do, do not stop, you know. And so he kept it going. She kept it going. And when she got to the end of the song, she was even worse. Is this what you like? This is what you want? I said, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and that's what we hear and on that's the record. What, that's, that's the record you hear. She sang it right straight through. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place, and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And then, so that was a huge hit. And then you needed more hits for the Supremes. And then I cannot believe in five nights you wrote three songs. Baby Love, Come See About Me, and Stop in the Name of Love. In five consecutive nights how <laughs> tell me about that because uh, a lot of times what i see in the book is is it was just like necessity was the mother of, of invention if you, were, you, right. you were pushed to do these things and you just did them but it, it's it seems kind of miraculous but, to yeah, me but you know what me too brian <laughs> honest to goodness yeah but what happened i was standing outside it was it was dark eve it was dark he was sort i know it was in the evening time and barry gordy had just left Barney Ellis, the salesperson, the guy who is responsible for a lot of the hits from Forrest, because he's this great salesperson. And Barry was, and he looked up and saw me. He said, Eddie, he said, you know, I just left Barney. He said, and Barney said that what we had in the Supremes, they're more of a flagship company because he's getting response from his record all over the world that he's never gotten before. And he said, what we have to do is take advantage of them 
that we have to make these girls big. We have to make it successful. And I looked at him, and I could see he was serious. I said, okay. And so when he, he didn't do a whole lot of talking, but I was glad he did say what he said to me. He knew that I was the kind of a person that if I had an idea of what the company wanted, I was always, you know, first in line to try to do and make money, you know, and he knew that about me, if nothing else. But I went upstairs, I told Brian, I said, Brian, look, here's the situation. We got to get some songs on these girls. You know, Lamont was standing there, and Brian was sitting at the piano. I said, we've got to. I said, we have to do it right away. I don't know how in the hell <laughs> that Brian came up with all those melodies. I really don't know how he did it. But you know what? <clears throat> Creative binds sometimes is a strange kind of thing. It's almost like you don't control what's happening. If you feel that you have a need to do something, all of a sudden it's like a another calling to you. You know, I don't know who I don't know what it is. It's the same thing in writing. I, I mean, I, I never knew what come was going to come out of me when I would try to put these words together, but I would sort of listen to the melody, listen to it over and over again until I almost got into somewhat of a hypnotic state, not knowing how to write. And I just wrote down everything that would come to me. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was junk, <laughs> you know. And I would take the good parts and I would start putting it together to form, almost like a puzzle, to form this feeling, this inspiration. That and this is how I could put you know these songs together you know but whatever it was it worked. We went into the studio that week you know short what even a week you know, and one three hour session we did all three of those songs. It's incredible. And Brian, you were kind of you were having a thing with uh, Diana Ross at the time, and uh, Baby Love was kind of inspired by that. Well, kind of, kind of, but though I. Can't say she was directly the cause of that, but I had a romantic relationship with her that um, could have been subconsciously causing me to write the melody and whatnot, you know, and several other melodies that I did when I was dating her. But um, you know, who knows? Love. Oh, I know, Brian. Love. That, that. Let me tell you something. First of all. That is exactly what happened. <laughs> Brian, he probably doesn't do remember. But no. I know, see, Brian, he would get into these moods, especially if it was somebody he, you know, he's emotionally involved with, he was attracted to. And he would sit at the piano and start writing all these love songs. I said, Man, this guy is always, always love, <laughs> always that. You know, he's to get into those moods. And this baby, love, I thought it was a horrible title. I said, I hope he doesn't want me to write something about baby love. <laughs> baby love. You know, he gets it. You know what I mean? It's once that, once again, those creative juices start working, it takes you into places psychologically that you don't necessarily plan to go. You just automatically find instinctually you're moving there. And that's what he would do all the time, you know, mm. whatever it is, whether it was the song Bernadette. I said, oh, my God, not a Bernadette. Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, I hope this is not what he wants me to write. And I had to sit and listen to the melody. He's Bernadette. And then I said, well, I love the way he's coming on with the melody. I said, but I sure hope he doesn't come with a title of Bernadette. Sure enough. <laughs> In love with a Bernadette. I said, oh, my God, Brian, are you serious? He said, yeah. I said, I knew. I looked at his eyes. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> now, stop in the name of love. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about it, famously, of course, is it starts with the chorus. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that decision to kick it off like that? Well, I don't remember uh, exactly why. 
other than I knew that the, I wanted a great intro with the organ coming and stop, you know what I mean, for a dynamic of a situation, you know. So that was a, one of the, the things uh, that created that uh, intro. I wanted a dynamic intro, you know what I mean. Now that title was one that Lamont came up with, that yeah. Bryant liked. And my thing was, if Brian likes the title, I would stick with it because I figured I could make sense out of anything. Mm-hmm. I felt if I could make sense out of a baby love title, I could sure <laughs> make sense out of that. So I would leave it as it is, mm-hmm. you know, because to me that was a big part of it. And uh, But the only way I could write it and create it, I had to use my own experience. Like Lamont had an experience with the stopping the name of love for his personal, I don't know, Jeffrey, because he was he was a kind of a little playboy type thing, and but and we come up with the title, so that was good. But I didn't know about Lamont's experience. I can't live it. I wouldn't. I didn't, couldn't walk in his shoes, but I could walk in my own shoes. So what I would do I, with that song, I just took my experiences that were fast because I had two people that I was hooked into one relationship and had just met another person that for the first time I said, wow, this person is special, special, special. So, you know, and all, and so I had to write about that. And then there was another girl that thought she liked me. So she would have told the first girl, yes, you know what? He, 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 he's really, he, he interested in this girl up here. She's a secretary and she works in that law office. And, you know, so she took her up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to see her, so and that's what caused all that to happen. So I just wrote about that. Very, I mean, I was glad I was able to put those words together because I don't think I was that much of a wordsmith, to be honest with you. But it took me three weeks to put those things together. Smokey Robinson whips them out in a day or two, three days, you know, if he's in a good mood. Me, it took me two, three weeks. I don't care what kind of mood I was in. As a rule, <laughs> now, baby, don't you do it is uh, you know originally recorded by Marvin Gaye but it's also became a, a rock and roll classic as well i mean there's a great version by the band there's a great Rugged version band. by the who mm-hmm. uh, i don't even know the, the the who version is a little more obscure but it's incredible that's an underrated song it's a fantastic song <laughs> what do you remember about writing that one well I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how the heck I do. That didn't take me a long time to write that song. Because to me, it was just, it, was, it reminded me of a gospel. You know, because we, Brian and I, we had to go to church, man. When we were coming up, we had to at least four or five times a week. I mean, really. It was kind of nerve-wracking sometimes, but you had to do it. But it, it was just a rhythm thing. I mean, I love the rhythm thing, you know. So it was easy, baby, baby, don't do it, don't do it, baby. And then to go down to the river, that was all part of uh, uh, when you're sitting in church, to yeah. be honest with you, and, and they're giving you this baptize. And I can remember when I was baptized, and I remember the, the, the minister splashing me down in the water <laughs> and pulling me back up. So all of that, you know, don't break my heart. I was so, it was, a, once again, it was, that was the easy one because I just tied all, whatever that spiritual thing is, the gospel stuff that I picked up and I just made it palatable to females, you know, don't break my heart, blah, 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 blah. I never liked that song that much. Mm. I mean, I didn't think that much of it. It was just a track that did. And I don't know. I think we might have done it, did it for a B-side or something, you know. And I heard a few people really like it. I said, wow. You know, I was really, really very surprised. 
Years later, I had a better appreciation for it. You know, I mean, I love the way Marvin Gaye did it and the, and the other records I heard. I heard it by the Who or the band. I think it was the Who. On uh, uh, They did a video of it, and I saw it on TV, and I was shocked. They did a great job, too. You know what I mean? A great job. Baby, don't you do it. I said, wow, don't you break my heart. <laughs> and then when they said, go down to the river, and there I'll be. I mean, I loved it. It was really, really good. What do you remember about the the music of that coming together? Because it is a groove thing more than right, more than most. Was, right, know? right. Was well, we wanted to do some kind of R and B song at that time. Separate ourselves and do a little more R and B than the pop. That's what really happened. That's why we came up with that song. Now, uh, nowhere to run, Martha and the Vandellas. There is a bit of the times coming in, 1965, and it, there's a bit of Vietnam and, and everything else subtle because you weren't – the idea was uh, Barry wasn't too big on overt protest music, but it's it's slipping in there, right, with, with, with a song like that. Well, not really. See, Lamont came up with that title, and for what I understand, he came up with the title because of a person he knew that was going to the service. But see, when Lamont would come up with titles, he didn't necessarily, in, which he never did, tell me how and why he came <laughs> up with it. He just felt yeah. it and came up with it. And they, when they cut the track, they gave me this track with the nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So typically me, I had to write it from a female point of view. And this is what I did. Never knowing about Vietnam, of, of, of being a, the song being associated with, with someone in Vietnam. I didn't have. I had no idea. I wouldn't have written, written it like that way. I wouldn't have written it anyway. Not that way, because I didn't feel comfortable writing about things I didn't know about, or I had to write something I believe was appealing, because I r- was writing for them to be a hit. I want to make money. That was my whole object of writing in the first place to cause me want to write. I wanted to make money. What do you remember about that one, Brian? Mm, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Mm. Well, I do remember that I went out uh, in the studio, in the back of the studio, I went outside and got some chains. I used the chains on, on like on the back beat, you know what I mean? Just to create a different kind of sound, you know what I mean? And um, and I loved it. It was just a great song, great song. That's that's all I can remember. That. Yeah, because, Brian, you were also the main producer of, of right, these songs. Right, so, Although the engineer, too. Yeah. I engineered all my songs. They kept you busy, yeah. Kept so. me busy. That's right, <laughs> running down, hooking up mics and whatnot. <laughs> now, Barry was very aware of the low end, the bass. And mm. that was, I think, you know, when Paul McCartney listened to Motown Records, that was the first thing he noticed. Right. It's just it, it, the, the bass was much more present. Right. What was the trick there? The trick was we used two basses. Well, Jamerson, James Jamerson, which is, was the greatest bass player I know of, knew of, uh, we used him and then another bass player also. I can't remember the other guy's name, but um, we used two to get a real bass rumbling sound, you know what I mean, that uh, people would feel, you know. Was there an engineering trick as well? Well, well, not a trick, but or a technique. I, yeah, it's a technique to to balance them so where it would work. You know, not get too muddy. You know what I mean? But you know what I noticed when Barry first started and he built the studio, he wasn't really an engineer in the first place. 
But he, you know, the equipment wasn't that uh, sophisticated at that time. And the boy, we only had, what, eight tracks or something, Brian? Yeah. Eight tracks. Eight track. So Barry Gordy, for whatever reason, when he would, he would go for bass, drums, and he had a tendency to push the bass up and the back beat up. No one was really mixing like that, you know. He just felt putting that bass up because the first of all the bass movement was very very strong because of the, the, the sophistication of the bass that we mm-hmm. play we use and then he would want the backbeat that would give the drive so he instinctively started doing that and like I said when nobody else was doing it everybody else's records you know you know Capital RCA and whatever they were just uh, just normal what they called normal basses. They put the bass there and had it there. And, you know, but see, to us, the bass and the backbeat was really the key. You know, nobody else was functioning like that. We were functioning to get these records in a very strong, aggressive style. So he instinctively uh, started doing that. So we instinctively started mixing that way. And if so-called, we looked around, and they kept saying a Motown sound. And I remember in, in the studio, Barry said, guess what? I said, well, he said, you know, he said, we're trying to get the sound that they have in these major record companies. He said, we found, he said, I found out they're trying to get our sound. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, can you imagine that? They're trying to get our sound. <laughs> and I, I mean, that was mind-blowing to me because our equipment wasn't that sophisticated. Yeah. But we had good, solid equipment, you know, what it was. But we took the most out of it by making it dominant and creating that rhythm thing. So it just created the, the whole part. I, I think it was responsible for that so-called Motown sound because none of the musicians, I mean, the, the producers and writers, they didn't produce and write alike. But the sound was 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 in common. Unified it, yes. yeah. Yeah, the, yes. the, the sound of that was common. Same studio, same musicians, and it was mixed the same way because Brian was doing a lot of mi- other mixing. Now, something happened with the Supremes. I hear a symphony where I think you had to pull an all nighter writing the lyrics to that. Oh man, don't I, I mean, you know, when I wake up screaming now, thinking about that. <laughs> My brother called me. I was in for the night. And uh, he said, look, he said, I did this song, I hear symphony, he said, I played for Barry, and he said, man, he said, the Supremes are leaving town in the morning, I'd like for him to do this song. And I'm waiting for him, I said, I know he's not telling me what I think he's saying. I said, wait a minute, I said, said, when do you have to have it? You've got to have it in the morning. I couldn't believe my eyes. I'm the kind of guy that takes two and three weeks at least to do a song. He said he has to have it in the morning. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness. So I started working on that song, working on that song. And I was so tired, I could hardly hold my eyes open because I was not a really a night person, per se, you know. Even since when I was a kid, I couldn't stay up really, really late at night, although I would try to, but I couldn't. And so... I was so tired. It was like 12 o'clock. I was really beat then, really beat. And I, I said, I'm going to have to call Brian. I said, I'm going to have to tell him 
that I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. And I went to pick the phone up, and I felt so badly. I said, I don't want to disappoint him. So I put the phone back down, and I went, worked on it again, worked on it again. By the time it was 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, I, said, I went back to the phone again. I said, I just can't do this. I can't get through it. I can't hardly <laughs> keep my eyes open, let think, you know. And I was going, I said, I just can't make this. So I, once again, declined from calling him. And I just worked with that song all day, morning time coming, and and early morning. And I was still working on this song. And I on the way to the studio, I was still working on this song. As Diana, I was Diana Ross is in the studio. I'm getting ready to rehearse her, uh, not not in the studio, but the office, my office. I said, and I'm still working on this song. And man, it was so miserable. And I said to myself, I don't care. I will never do this again. I don't care what the situation is. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a bad bad time for me. Horrible yeah, time. but he, he would do it though. Oh no no no. He said uh, yeah, he said. Oh that. no, he said I couldn't. It, uh, no. I couldn't go through that stuff. Brian, don't believe him. No. <laughs> In the break, you guys were talking about the groove that uh, James Jamerson got in uh, Nowhere to Run. What were you saying? Wow, I loved it. Listen, yeah. he had that boom, 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 boom. And then I had another bass doing boom, 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 boom. And then Jamerson, he was so funny. He would always take his leg up and stomp down. Boom, 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 boom. boom. <laughs> like he's really into it, you know what I mean? Well, that's what he played his bass anyway. He was always into it, just stomping his feet, you know what I mean? But he was one of the greatest bass players ever. Matter of fact, there's been many, many bass players trying to emulate. Oh, sure. Uh, James Jamerson, you know. Right today, the guys tell me, say, man, I hear that James Jamerson, man, and I, I, I just can't. He only played with one finger, you know. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's when you crazy. think about it, that is really crazy. <laughs> now, Reach Out, I'll Be There, that is one dramatic wild song Brian the drama of that song how did that come about well I can't speak uh, about the drama of it I know that uh, well, you know it's all you know just reach out like all the, the, oh, the, all the, oh, the, the it's, it's so dramatic it's oh, so dramatic music, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing yeah reach yeah. out okay <laughs> right I don't know we was in the, the working on a song in the office and uh, reach out and I'll be there I, I don't know, maybe you can explain. To, uh, I well, but I, I, yeah, I was sitting there, but you, you're right, right what right. you said. But see, once again, that's when creative people, I don't know what happens to all of us or something, you know. You get hit by this inspiring situation. The moment, in the moment. In the moment. In the moment, in the moment you know, right. You're not planning it, you know. You're not even thinking about it, you know. You just—it's like euphoric. You just boom, you hit it, and that's what Brian did. Mm. He hit that chord part, you know. And uh, it was sounding really, really strong. To me, it sounded symphonic, like a symphonic yeah. type of thing, you know. And what happened, Lamont was standing out there by him, and Lamont all of a sudden... <laughs> you got the feeling. <laughs> he pushed Brian out of the way. First of all, I was insulted. I said, this guy crazy, crazy. Because the way Lamont violently almost is what I... It's just, just pushed him out of the way and went to the dump, dump, you know what I mean? Went to that that, that middle part, you know? And th- th- he got caught up in the feeling of it also. And that's why he pushed Brian out of the way, because he had the feeling, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? And he just wanted to get it before he lost it, mm-hmm. you know? And But like I said, when he when he said that, when he 
pushed Brian out of the way. He shoved him out of the way, yeah. Yeah, he did. He shoved him out of the way. And I, I, I never will forget it like we just said. I said, man, this guy, is he crazy? <laughs> you know, because I was a fit. <laughs> I don't know what the heck was going on. So that is what created that thing, you know. But then all I had to do was write it. That would have been the easy part. <laughs> I mean, so that would be like when it was given to you to write lyrics. Because it's hard for me to imagine that without the lyrics. So was it just like, dun, 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 dun. You know what I mean? Is oh, that yeah, how you oh, had it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the part, the dun, 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 dun. Oh, yeah. That was a symphonic part of it. That's, how, I mean? that's how it hit everybody. Yeah. Yeah. If you slowed it down and played it, it would be very symphonic, you know what I mean? Like a orchestral type of thing, you know. So you would just, would you record a scratch vocal that was like humming for these songs? You know, it, it, you know what I mean? What was what was expressing well, oh, well, the melody for that he wrote? To no, 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 yeah, no. We'll yeah. give it. Yeah, we'll, we'll oh, I would hear them. I remember. I could remember. Yeah. See, no. the, the, see, my one talent. Right. I could remember right. melodies. Right. Gotcha. I could hear it and I remembered them. Right. So and right. I could retain the feeling of right. it. So there'd be no vocal. You you would no. just yeah. Okay. No. Okay. No. Got it. Yeah. What an amazing process, though. Yeah. <laughs> the last time I asked you is you, you point out that at Motown, it was basically more important to have a hit song than even a good song. Although, God knows you had a bunch, he, a lot of good songs. Well, but th- that commercial, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, Brian, I was yeah. going to say it was more important to have a hit song than a girlfriend at that time. <laughs> 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 well, one comes with the other, I guess. <laughs> well, well, it came after for sure. <laughs> but no, no, but but Barry was very. Uh, he he was tough on. The, mm. He went. He got to sound a certain way. He was very lyric conscious, song mm-hmm. conscious, very, very much so. So that always put us on the, you know, pushing for for, mm-hmm. for something, you know, because he was very, very conscious of, because he was a songwriter. See, the type of things that we were doing, he couldn't do that anyway. Mm-hmm. He never felt that, never heard that. But a song, he always heard a song, mm-hmm. the lyric, the melody, you know. It just so happened Bryant was so good at what he was doing. You know, and Barry thought it was very unique. And then when I started writing the song, he was really, really impressed because he would always say that other people, he could never hardly hear songs that were always right. Mm. Nothing wrong with it. He said and he could understand why I could do that because after the first two or three you know, I remember in the studio, he said, Eddie, he said, you keep writing like this, I'm going to think you're better than me. <laughs> and I said, Barry, I am better than you. <laughs> he said, what did you say? I said, I am better than you. And he got very, very quiet, you know, because he, he was always sensitive about his creativity in the first place. But coming from me, he tolerated, He, you know. But the fact is, that's what I believe. I believe I was better than him. I wasn't being, you know, that's the way it was, you know. Well, Brian and Eddie Holland, thank you so much for being here. That was amazing. We could have talked for a whole lot more. Check out their book, Come and Get These Memories. And that is our show for today. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave a nice review for Rolling Stone Music Now on iTunes. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Move. 
movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but... Are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.